Low Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. I was definitely a mother's boy just by the nature of my upbringing. My father was the working man and the more strict parent, and my mother was a very kind woman. She wasn't perfect, but she did everything she knew to do to raise her two kids. She faced many struggles in life, just like anyone else. It's unbelievable that 10 years ago, she was taken from us, from myself, my brother, her fiance, her family, my father's family. It affected everyone who had come in contact with her to know that someone so special to us could be gone in an instant. It feels like forever ago and yesterday all at once. And I know that makes no sense, but anyone who has experienced loss can understand it. Hello and welcome to episode 203 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to be taking a deep dive into the files, and we are going to be talking to Christine of the True Crime Files out of Canada. And this is an interesting case, and Christine is very knowledgeable about this subject matter. So I really think that you guys will enjoy this week's episode of Who Killed? So thank you very much for tuning in and enjoy. This week, I am lucky enough to be joined by Christine from True Crime Files out of Canada, our friends up north. Thank you so much for joining me this week, Christine. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I um, fought really hard to get out of my igloo to be able to talk to you today from the cold north, but I made it. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm you guys have be been experiencing some uh, wild weather up there. Yeah, I'm originally from the Vancouver, BC area, but I moved to London, Ontario around six years ago. And I have to say that one of the saddest losses was the moderate weather because it's quite a shock with the minus 30 and the snow and stuff when you're not used to it. But I'm slowly acclimatizing. So that's good. And no mountains. No, it's very flat and there's no ocean. I find it very confusing because whenever we leave town and drive north, like where I was from in BC in the lower mainland, it was called, as soon as you drive north, like within 10 or 15 minutes, it was all these beautiful soaring mountains. And here it just seems to get flatter, but that's okay. I'm, um, it has its own beauty, that's for sure. Welcome to the Midwest. <laughs> yes. We're yes. happy to have you. <laughs> even if you I think outdoors. there's some joke about people watching their dog run away for days. I get a little bit of that here. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. I mean, the, the U.S. is no different. If I, I mean, I went to school in the University of Utah, and I would drive to school, and you could see a train. There were parts of the country where you could see the start of the train and the end of the train just from the highway <laughs> it's like okay that's hilarious oh, all right well this is pretty flat and barren <laughs> oh no yeah so yeah it's definitely a different landscape and weather pattern that i'm used to but yeah i'm slowly slowly fitting in so that's good i bought my first park and snow boots so i think i'm good all right well look at you you are fitting in so yeah. tell me a little bit about your show Perfect. Um, well, I started a true crime website back in the summer of 2017. And on that website, I cover missing person cases and unsolved murders. I also throw in the occasional true crime book review and podcast review. 
Um, but then in August of 2019, Scott Fuller from, um, he does Frozen Truth and Status Pending and mm-hmm. Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Basically, almost every podcast you listen to, Scott's involved somehow, it seems. Um, he reached out and said he really thought that we could leverage the articles into short format true crime podcasts. So that's what we've done. I met him back when I was on Frozen Truth with him for a couple episodes. Um, yeah, so I still have the true crime blog slash website. It's pretty active. And then we now have a podcast every couple of weeks where we turn one of the articles into a podcast episode. And I really like it because it helps me kind of like get more people to know about the cases that I think haven't been covered much or don't get much attention. It just gets more people reading and learning about the cases. So that's why I think it's a super great project. And yeah, I couldn't thank Scott enough for the idea. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really, I've been to your website. It's definitely top notch as far as uh, formatting and all that stuff. I mean, it looks, it looks great. And I can see, I can see why uh, Scott would have thought it would have been a good idea to turn, turn it into podcasts because basically that's kind of the way of the world at the moment. And yeah, and I lack a bit of that technical expertise. So I had never been able to force myself yet to learn all the like how to upload shows or buy fancy microphones or anything like that yet. So it sure helps to have Scott do all of that part for me. So I just can do what I'm good at researching and writing the content and Scott leverages it into the podcast format. Um, the short episode format probably isn't for everyone because they're only about 10 to 15 minutes long, but it really gives someone flavor for the case, like the background they need if they want to research more. And plus it's perfect for like, if you're like throwing together your dinner or making your kids lunch, or I always listen to podcasts while I shower or stuff like that. So I think it's a good length for that kind of thing. I don't know if that's safe. (laughs) <laughs> well, I leave my phone outside of the shower, uh, like on a gotcha. shelf, like it doesn't actually enter with me, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> no, I would probably only do that once. So yeah. maybe I could buy like a waterproof speaker or something. Come to think of it, they must make those, but yeah. Uh, I, I have one. It's, it's amazing. You can actually pick oh, it up. Oh, see? A... So you listen to podcasts in the shower then. I do. That's why I was kind of yeah. getting on you about Who it. doesn't? This is like what I wonder. So yeah. So anyway, that's how the, so that's some history about me. I, yeah, I've been interested in mysteries and true crime since I was a kid. I used to hide under my covers and read true crime books like Helter Skelter and I'll age myself a little bit here, but like tape unsolved mysteries on the family VCR. I think you're not you're not dating yourself that that's (laughs) that's in my wheelhouse that that was that was my that was my era I grew up on unsolved mysteries I trust me that was the oh I can the music still gives me nightmares it just gives me that pit in my stomach like oh, I'm going to hear about something that I really don't want to hear about right now. Yeah, well, it might give you nightmares. It gives me kind of like good chills because to (laughs) me, it's like the unsolved mystery part that always draws me in, like trying to solve a puzzle, right? So yeah, you mentioned mentioned that you'd like to focus on the the lesser known cases. And I kind of feel like that's what I try to do too. 
I mean, there are some cases that I covered that are obviously more known, but there are a lot of cases, more cases than you would imagine that actually fall through the cracks as far as what the public knows about. And I think the case that we're talking about today is kind of one of those. And what is that case? Right. Um, well, when I first moved to London, when I came to go to school at Western University here, I, of course, like I'm sure everyone does, looked at the local police services website to check out unsolved cases because nobody does that. Do that when they move to a town. No. Okay. No. Oh, dear. Well, I did. So, and I stumbled upon this unsolved murder case, um, London Police Service does a good job. They have a great website where they have like a little write-up about all the unsolved cold cases and even more current cases in the city to hope to get tips and stuff like that. So I found a case on the murder of a young mother called Lisa Leckie, and it really caught my interest. And I think it was like either the second or third article I ever wrote for my site once I started getting it going. And I think it was maybe the first or second podcast episode I asked Scott to make. So it definitely is close to my heart and it's always kind of interested me. And yeah, it's not really written about much here in London. It's not covered much by the media except like on anniversaries sometimes it's mentioned a bit. And you know, it's one of those cases that sort of like fades into the background because it seems like nothing's going on with it. Yeah, I think that that happens a lot in cases where there isn't a lot of information to go on the anniversaries are really the only opportunities to kind of bring up new information or at least get the public's attention because in a lot of cases you know just like lisa's case especially with the research that i was doing on it i was finding that there were a lot of people from that area that were talking about like i don't even remember this case i don't i don't remember right. this at all and it's that's such a shame because there are some cases you can't decide or figure out why they get covered more than other cases. But for whatever reason, some of them just kind of. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So yeah, to give you a little background, um, just a little bit of the context as to like why this case is so um, interesting to me is that, well, she was killed in back in two. 2009. And yeah, I don't know how many of your listeners know much about London, Ontario. So I'll tell you a little bit about where we are. Please do. Um, yeah. So back in 2009, it had a population of probably a little over 350,000 people. So I, I yeah, I I would classify that as a big city, but then I don't really like big cities much. So maybe that's why to me that feels like a lot of people, but it's definitely like no Toronto or Vancouver or anything. Um, and so it's located in Southern Ontario, which as you mentioned is in Canada and where we really don't all live in Ingl like igloos like people think, but um, it's about a two hour drive west of Toronto. And it's definitely a university town. Like there's two huge schools here, Western University and Fanshawe College. Um, and the population swells about 100,000 people during the school year. And yeah, so that's a bit of context about London. You can also tell it's a university town because anytime you walk around, there's all those red beer cups everywhere all over <laughs> the ground and like pizza boxes. So yeah, so I, I always found that interesting because I had never seen that before I moved here either. Sounds like every um, college I went to. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, 
So yeah, so I already told you how I learned about Lisa's case just by browsing, but I was really drawn to it because as you said, it's interesting how some cases kind of like just fall to the wayside and I'm not really sure why this happens with this case. Like her family seemed to work really hard to keep her case alive. Like her mom, Cheryl, even like sold hoodies and sweatshirts with the message that said not knowing is the real nightmare to like try to remind people about the case and that she just wanted answers about what happened to her daughter. So like after doing what research I could, I just really focused on the case and wanted to try to help remind people that yeah, her crime is still unsolved. And on the site, it's generated a lot of comments. The family members have gotten involved and they've had discussions with each other on the site comments. Um, from the comments, you'll can tell there's some conflict in the family. People have different opinions and views as to what might've happened to Lisa. And, but I mean, if you put all that aside, they like her sister and her grandmother and like everybody really just wants the case solved. Right. So of course emotions are heightened. So, you know, I'm just glad that there's a forum there for sure um, to share their feelings and insights. They have also even shared, I'm really getting drawn into the case because in the comments they've shared things that the police haven't released. I'm not sure how much of those things should be out there or if they're like, not that they're not true, but maybe filtered through multiple different people. So I don't really add those kind of details to the case article itself, but any additional information the family members feel like sharing is up there in the comments for people to read. I haven't taken them down. And then um, Lisa's son, Sean, reached out to me after I wrote the article and we discussed the case and the tremendous impact it's had on him and his family. And I have a son around his age and that really breaks my heart because I can think of all he's missed about not having a mom. Right. So that really spoke to me about the case. Yeah. That was definitely one thing about, so he reached out to you. Gosh, he wasn't even, excuse me. How, how old was he when he reached out to you? Um, after I wrote the article, so, and after his family members started commenting on the case, he sort of like just reached out to me and, you know, thanked me for reminding people about his mom's case and, and that his family was just trying to get answers. And we discussed some of the comments that had been made on the site. And then he contacted me again when we turned the article into a podcast to, you know, just say thanks again for, you know, spreading the news of my mom. So he's now a college student. So yeah, he contacted me. I can't remember the exact date, but maybe like, I don't know, a couple of years ago kind of thing. Yeah. It's pretty forward. I mean, to put yourself out there as a child who's obviously been through a huge tragedy in the family and then to reach out to the person that's writing about it. I think that says a lot about his maturity and the way that he's been able to handle or deal with this miserable uh, situation, basically. Oh, yeah. Like, even in my communication with him, like, it's obvious he's grown into a wonderful young man who I know his mother would be extraordinarily proud of. And all he wants, like, I think most people would want is answers about what happened to his mom, right? So I can't even imagine what he's been through. 
And I just know that he appreciates any coverage that the case gets. And I'm sure London Police Service just wants people talking about it and to keep it top of people's minds, right? So, and on the 10 year anniversary, so back in 2019, he released this like a 10 year anniversary appeal, like asking people to come forward with any information and stuff like that. So yeah, he, it's definitely not a cold case. So yeah. All right. So, so we've kind of laid out where and you know, what the demographics are and as far as London goes, when Lisa was killed, how exactly, like when, okay. See, I'll edit that part out. See, it's perfect. This is beautiful. See, I can make So, like, it. what happened? Like, the- no, okay. See, let me do it. Let me set it up better. But, yeah. So, so Lisa, they, basically, how did they find Lisa's body? How did they know that there was something wrong? Who discovered her body? Right. Okay. So, um, so her... So on Tuesday, March 24th, 2009, um, her common-law husband, Derek Stacy came home from work after he had worked the night shift. And yeah, he went into their third floor, um, he went into their third floor apartment and he discovered her there dead. And it was one horrible aspect of the case that remains burned in my mind is that her eight-month-old son, Rain, like their son, Um, her and Derek's son was at home at the time she was killed, but thankfully he was found safe in his crib. And yeah, that's always been a really haunting aspect of the case for most people who cover it is that someone would kill the child's mother while the child was there and just leave, right? Like just leave. So anyway, Mm -hmm. and her other son, Sean, who I'd spoken about earlier, he was eight or nine years old at the time. I, I can't quite remember. And, but he wasn't at home. He was at the home of his father, Phil Leckie. So thankfully he wasn't home the evening this happened. Yeah, so that's when it happened and how she was found. And the London Police Service eventually released that she had been asphyxiated but, and Will did a homicide, obviously, but they never released any details about time of death or method of death or anything of that nature. So still it makes to this it day. still to this day. So there, I haven't found anything about time of death out there. Um, even in the 10 year anniversary article, there was definitely more details then, but they did release something like, yeah, something came out of that press conference in 2019. And what was it? Right. Um, so what they, so what came out of that press conference that they had never released before was that a typewritten note had been found at the murder scene, which I thought I had to go update the article that I had written when this press conference happened, because I was shocked by that. There definitely wasn't much talk of that anywhere. Um, although what the note exactly said hasn't been released to the public the police did say that it was written on an old impact style model typewriter with a fabric ribbon, which even in 2009 would have been like extremely rare. Oh so, yeah, for sure. Right. I, I used to work for a late, I used to actually worked, used to work for a label company in Cleveland that sold like 
computer labels and we owned Smith Corona, <laughs> which is the typewriter. <laughs> and literally the only people that bought for the typewriters were jails and prisons because they're right. the only ones that still used uh, that type of impact ribbon. Right. So yeah, that is weird. That's great texture to know. Yeah, I had no idea. But apparently it was super rare even in 2009. So oh, yeah. Um, family members on the site had mentioned the note and its contents, I think even before the press conference. Um, but I, you know, you never, not to doubt what anyone says, but I've learned over the years to not take every comment that appears on every article as gospel truth that either a the person leaving the comment is really who they say they are or mm -hmm. that it's actually factual so i never updated the article in any way and then this press conference came out and it sort of like supported a lot of what had been discussed um at the time of lisa's murder there was a potential witness that the police really wanted to talk to which they also discussed this again, I think, at the press conference. But, and that always led me to believe that maybe it could have been one of those rare stranger killings, but I still would need to be sold on that. But then after this typewritten note thing came out, I pretty well took that idea off the table, right? Um, but at the time, like, there was a potential witness who was seen about 15 months after Lisa's murder, they released really poor quality surveillance camera footage that captured a man from behind as he wandered along a sidewalk close to where Lisa lived. They never really said what made him a potential witness in quotes that they wanted to talk to. Yeah. They don't but, really say, they say, they, they say he's a, a person they just want to talk to. Right. Which I mean, if I was that guy, I would still be freaked <laughs> out by that, but yeah. So, I mean, you can go online and on the site, there's images of him. He looked to be around 5'10", 200 pounds, wearing jeans and a black jacket over a hoodie, which is basically most men I know. So I don't know how useful that is. But the yeah. police definitely stressed he's not a suspect and just a witness. But And I think they mentioned him again or re-released the footage at the 10-year anniversary thing. I, I can't quite remember, but... You know, I don't know how he could possibly be connected with the typewritten note. In my mind, it probably is for sure someone she knew. But yeah, like so, the way that I see that footage, the picture, one, they obviously must release this with a little bit of desperation in hopes that somebody is going to recognize the clothing that this person's wearing because there is literally no way to determine what this person looks like from the front. Right. It's like the back of some guy. Like so. it could be anybody. Right. Right. So, so uh, and in my mind, his clothing, isn't really that like, mm -mm. like, like his clothing doesn't stand out as different. Like there's no insignia on the jacket or no, like that I could see like anything that would make it marketably like markedly noticeable. If I saw someone else wearing that jacket later, it just looked like jeans and a jacket over a hoodie or something to me. Yeah. I it mean, wasn't like a Canada goose jacket or something like that no. that would stand uh, out. Right. But if you want to like see, footage, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, if you want to see the picture, go to, uh, the true crime files.com and just look up Lisa Lucky murder and the pictures 
you have the picture right. on the website. So but and yeah, like, like, I can't even tell from the picture if the guy's wearing a hat or if he just has the weirdest hair. Like I spent a I was long time staring at it, trying to figure that out. I don't know. Anyway, that shows you what a bad quality photo it is. But I mean, they could only work with what they had, right? Like the police have definitely, it's not like they haven't done a, a, their best. Like I think the case is far from cold, like over the last 10 years, I read that 80 different officers have worked on the case and they've had over 300 interviews and that it's still open and active and they did this big press conference type thing on the 10 year anniversary. So they're definitely not giving up. So, but I mean. So what's, I, the, what's your feeling about the, the, the individual they released this picture of? Because how close is it from when this picture was taken to when Derek finds the body? I don't even no, like, can, can you tell I mean, the timestamp on there? Yeah, the timestamp. There... Yeah, there's a timestamp on your on it's it's uh three twenty three at twenty one twelve forty two. Right. So it's, so it's basically what uh eight thirty or eight fifteen or nine fifteen. I don't even. Right, and like they found the body at seven in the morning when he got home from work. Uh-huh. So I don't know what makes them suspicious of this person. Like, is like, does this have, like, they haven't said, like, does this happen to be the only person who wandered by the camera? Like the only male? Why do they, why I like, are they sure it was a male? I have no idea why they focused on this person. Like they must have some other reason that he's a witness. They want to talk to you. Like, right. Like they didn't release photos of Mm -hmm. other people who wandered by. Yeah. Generally speaking, you know, when when you see something like the numbers that you were just talking about and and having hope that, you know, 80 officers have done 300 interviews. I mean, I've done some cases where I've had, you know, 100 officers doing 10,000 interviews and it still doesn't get you anywhere. You know, it's just like right. you're just chasing your tail because you really don't know what the hell you're looking for. And from this case at least from my perspective is we literally are chasing this guy's tail if this is the perpetrator because we can only see him from the backside and that is a problem and right but there's a reason why they are saying oh he's just a witness a witness because they're trying to make him comfortable (laughs) right idea that it's cool it's cool to come in and talk to the police like no worries don't bring a lawyer Right. I would be totally interested in learning what exactly about this person made them choose him to be the potential witness, right? Like maybe he's the only person that walked by in hours, maybe, right? Like maybe well, this it doesn't is the look only busy. camera. Right. So maybe because of the time, this is the only person they have. Maybe that's what it is. But I but I've always wondered. I mean, anything you read about the case it's typically boils down to if it was someone who knew her that it might have been either her ex-husband or her common law partner right like usually yeah. when women are murdered it's by someone they know who's close to them yeah like we said before we even started you know it's the murder of the week <laughs> it's always right. the husband <laughs> right but and so uh, when i first learned about the case before i got the confirmation about the note and stuff i thought well maybe it is this person from the surveillance video maybe it and like if they can't figure out who it is i thought maybe he's almost a stranger to lisa if not an actual stranger where stranger killings i think are much more rare right so but i mean her ex 
Phil Lecky, he seemed really broken up from what I saw um, about her murder. Like he Mm -hmm. told the media about how, you know, him and Sean were trying to move on and how hard it had been and how it was the loss of Sean's mother and how much she was loved and what a huge part of their lives she was. Like, I mean, the police haven't cleared anyone as a suspect, but, and you never know from what people say, but it just really seems unlikely that he was involved. And then the common law partner, Derek, who found her, like, I couldn't really find much out out there about their relationship, but I mean, because they've played it so close to the vest and haven't released like estimated time of death, or maybe they don't know for some reason, it's hard to know like when he left for work, when he came home, but I don't know. I, yeah. That's I, kind I of think, my next question is like, so what time did he go to work that night? And was, yeah, what ta- I, did he see her alive when he left? <laughs> right. Like I'm assuming he must've seen her alive when he left. I would hope I so. have no, Yep. Like I haven't been able to find that I could see like when he left, but if you just go like, I mean, if you work backwards, you would say he would probably leave around 10. Like most people might work like 11 to seven. Right. Like if there. Oh yeah. I mean, I work one to, I work one to 10 AM. Right. So So he gets off at seven in the morning. So if you work backwards, right. Like if you had an eight nine hour shift, right. Like 10 or 11, he'd probably be leaving. But like, I think it would like, like, well, like the surveillance pictures before that. Right. Right. So I don't know. And the police haven't ever said he was a suspect. They, and like he would have had to have murdered the mother of his child and left his child there with her all night while he was at work. Right? Which yeah, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of jumping to conclusions on that one if you if he's gonna be the perpetrator. Right. Like the- I right, like I find that like really I would up. like to say <laughs> impossible for someone to do but then from all the true crime research and writing that i do i know that isn't the case but i i would say it's extremely rare we're distorted right right so i yes i would like to think as a human being that that is extremely rare and no one has come forward and said that he seems like the type of person capable of doing something like that. So the police have not ever said either Phil or Derek are suspects. They have never ruled either of them out, but it's just as the circle closes more with the note, like, and, and now like the police are saying that they're fairly sure at the press conference that it's, you know, that the murderer was someone new to Lisa, right? Like someone knew her. She knew who killed her, how well she knew them remains up in the air. Was it someone she was intimate with? That's sadly commonly the case, but it's definitely looking more like someone knew her. How long had Lisa lived in the place that she was actually found uh, dead? That I do not know. I do not know. I I never found that. So, yeah, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the with the housing that she lived in? You know, because that picture that they do show, I think I've read that that was from a surveillance video from the building. Am I right? Cut? Yeah. Um. She lived in a third floor apartment on South Dill Road East in London, and it's 
not the best or prettiest neighborhood, but it's an average size apartment building in a average type neighborhood. Like it's not in the bad part of town, in the great part of town. It's just where, I don't know, where anyone could live, right? Like there was nothing about the location that stuck out to me. It wasn't like they were living in the, in the, you know, yeah, like you said, the bad part of town, but not to right characterize it but not living in the ghetto or anything like that upon right it was just you know average part of town your average apartment building you know just a few stories high not you know like i don't think there was anything about the apartment building that jumped out at me but also like I don't think the police ever really mentioned, like, was there forced entry? Did she let the person in? What is the possible time of death? Like, they're just keeping lots of information to themselves, of course, to protect the integrity of the case, which makes sense. But then, like, it just makes it really difficult to come to any possible conclusions about suspects or anything. So they know way more than we do, which is good. They're, like, they're the people that need to know it. So all we can work with is what little we know. And as the years pass, it seems like maybe they'll release more and more. Like they release the information about the note, right? So, yeah, I mean, I've I've covered cases before where they've waited. I mean, I the first case I ever covered, they waited twenty seven years before they released a couple items that they found at the crime scene that could have been. Uh, part of the uh, you know transportation of the body or something along those lines and it was like well why did they wait so long and when I interviewed the chief of police he was like dude in 1989 if you sent me that kind of sent that to the FBI they wouldn't even know what to do with it so you know we just held on to it until the technology got there so maybe wow, that's such a long amount of time yeah like oh I've my gosh hoped, it's crazy like i've always hoped maybe they have dna maybe they i don't know like like maybe but if they have dna then you think they could have ruled out the people closest to her by now right yeah. because they could have easily checked that um so i don't know if they have DNA because they haven't said. I don't know what kind of forensic evidence they found at the scene. It's definitely not covered very often in this case. So there's just not a lot of information out there. Yeah. So why does okay. it make it, why is this a passion case? Is it because of the fact that there's such little information being distributed to the public and they're asking for the public's help? Is that one yeah. of the Definitely. So they're asking for the public's help. So that's what makes this a passion case. I feel like we can help. I can write about it. I can share the case with people. That's the one small way I can help is by getting the name out there. Plus I feel passionate about the case after the connection I've made with Lisa's family. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely those reasons. Um, Yeah. And as far as Sean goes, I mean, have you maintained a somewhat of a communication with him? Um, I think I last emailed back and forth with him when the podcast episode came out about his mom's case. And yeah, so that was the last time we talked. And I'll probably send him an email after this is up to let him know Mm -hmm. that 
we've worked again harder to get news about his mom's case out there and I'll send him a link. Well, we'll bring um, it to the States. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, one thing about London that, so it's two hours West of Toronto. And I think I told you, I used to go to Toronto all the time when I was, before I was 21 and would go up there and, you know, drink and drink. <laughs> Come on, let's right. just be honest. Let's yeah. just be honest. They had a hell of a club scene and it was a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. And uh, yeah, it was really, really, really cool time. But nonetheless, uh, I'm also a sailor. So I've been to the other side of Lake Erie uh, and been to certain parts of Canada that most people never been from right. my part of the state at least. And, and I would say that you know, there's a lot of, it's, it's a beautiful area, but it's definitely no Vancouver. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I've learned that, but I mean, the Great Lakes are beautiful. Like I was oh. stunned. I was stunned the first time I saw one. I'm like, okay, this is almost oceany. Like it's big enough that like there's waves and like you can't see across it. So that's I'm the like, number one thing people don't understand when you explain what a great lake is to them. They're like, wait, you know, it's a lake. And I'm like, no, we're sailing. Yeah, but wait, it's great. Like yeah. that means it's big. <laughs> like, I mean, it's in the title, right? It's, it's one in the of the title, great damn lakes. It. You can't see it's across. Big. You can't see across. Just right. Across. It's great. It's big. It doesn't mean great like good. It's great. It's big. Yeah, it doesn't mean not polluted. It just means it's. <laughs> yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that. So, like, especially some of them. But, like, yeah, I think it's important also to bring this case to the States if it was someone who was just traveling through, which would be super weird, I think. But who knows? Like, we're not that far from the border. Well, right? when, you have, when you have a case like, that goes 10 years unsolved, and like you said, they've kept a lot of stuff close to the vest it might also be that they don't have a lot. And if they don't have a lot, then that puts more theory into the stranger. And I know that's much more uncommon, Definitely. but it happens. It does it happen. Does. I mean, it could still be that one guy that just randomly saw her going into her apartment and decided, well, Today is the day I'm going to be a murderer. And but first, let me stop at home and whip up this typewritten note on this old archaic typewriter. Uh, like that. That's a good. Now, see, when you throw that out there, that fucks my whole theory up. Not the part of my. Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. French. But uh, you so know, I, um, except if it was someone who was stalking her for a while then that's possible, right? Like maybe then they could pre-plan that, I guess. I think it makes it much more unlikely. As soon as I read about the note and stuff and the like, yeah, I don't want to say what the rumor is that's in the note because the police haven't released it. But if you read the comment section on the, on the site, it's there. And if that's true, what was in the note, it, it just makes it even more bizarre. It is so, bizarre. I looked it up. It, it, and if you do want to find it, you can find it. I'm not going to say what it yeah. is. But it, yeah, that, because I don't know if it's true. The police haven't released that information. So I don't want to But it's so it. bizarre. Right. It, so then, like, that. what the hell does that do to the case? Like, who does that suggest it is? Like, I don't know. I, Paul Bettany? <laughs> yes. 
he is very pale. So <laughs> like, I suppose that could be true. So yeah, so I don't know. I have no he idea. He was really vicious in Wimbledon, I tell you. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, <laughs> is, um, wasn't he also the bad guy in one of like the... No, he was a bad guy. That's exactly why I'm Or like, I think it was That's the second one, right? No, it was the first yeah. one. That's why I'm referencing oh, him. <laughs> Yeah, he's well. I thought it was because he was very pale and creepy. So yeah, well, they're definitely. all anybody who's pale and creepy are generally killers. <laughs> I mean, that's yes, just... yes. Oh no, I can just imagine the <laughs> the listener mail you're gonna get now <laughs> from all the pale people out there. Oh, so... don't worry. Eighty percent of my listeners are female. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, that is also a strange, strange true crime thing. But what can you do about that? But that is a that is a true fact, though. <laughs> yeah, I think women are interested in mysteries and yeah. And being I able to that's a part of it. know a little bit about how to protect how to protect themselves. themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think the more informed you are about bad things that happen, maybe the more knowledge you have, as you said, to help not have them happen to yourself, right? So Yeah, even if it's uh, like a false <laughs> like it's kind of like a, a false placebo. sense of security. Yeah. Exactly a false sense of security, you're right. And yeah. But again, it makes you question, at least look around and, you know, double check your environment before you do something. I mean, right. I've read countless articles about why women are drawn to true crime. And I don't know, I think that you can't lump all women together in one category and that every person, whether male or female, has their own particular individual reasons for why they get interested in it. I think that you shouldn't lump everybody in together with, oh, it's because women want to protect themselves or, oh, it's because women like to solve mysteries. I know why I'm interested, but I don't know why the person across the street might be, right? So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, would never, I would never try to imply that my interest in true crime is the same interests that other people have or, you know, right. again. Sometimes it's- it just makes me mad to hear people paint Everyone with the same brush, no matter who those people are, right? Broad so. strokes. Nobody yes. likes broad strokes. Nobody does. So yeah, I don't know what to do with this case other than keep, I share the article often. I talk about it whenever I can. You're doing I, this? Yeah, I'm doing this. I mean, I don't know what else to do other than just keep hoping that somehow her loved ones can get the answers they need. Well, the fact that, that she has a son out there who's of... Two sons. Well, yeah. two, well two sons, one of who's... What, In college now, yeah. Eight, nine years older than the youngest. Yeah. Um, he can actually make a huge impact on the case by being a spokesperson for the... No, it's not like I don't want to put the pressure on him. Like, he has to be that guy. Well, he's already, I think he's already stepped up and taken on that role at the press conference if you watch it. So Mm -hmm. definitely you're not putting pressure on him to take on that role. I think he's already embraced it. I can't imagine how hard that must be for him. But yeah, it just shows his strength and conviction, I would say. Yeah. And I think that's what drives a lot of these cases. And if if these cases are eventually going to be solved, it is going to take a lot of passion because they're not generally thought of after they've kind of gone through the system. I know that we have a cold case unit. We have a this, that, and the other, and, you know, they'll always look back at old crimes. And I know that cold cases has become a four letter word and a lot of 
police departments. And I don't know if that's always been the case, but I've noticed it a lot in the last couple of years as far as Yeah, me too, because they try to say no cases cold. No cases cold, but it's always active. We're we, Except we, it's in a file back there in the filing cabinet and no one's read it for 10 years. But other than that, like, like yeah, we still like, have an open file, but yeah, it hasn't actually been opened. <laughs> it's like, okay. Right. All right. So, but I, but I do understand their view. They don't want to have it look like they've given up. Right. And often they haven't given up. They just lack the resources to dedicate time when new cases keep coming in. So I, mean, I, I love cold case files. Like when I was yeah. like a teenager and Bill Curtis, I actually, I had just a really, really quick random story. I worked for the general manager at the CBS affiliate here in Cleveland. And he was actually a coworker of Bill Curtis's in Chicago. Oh my gosh. And I was oh, like, what a small world. You got to work with Bill Curtis. And I mean, this guy was older, so he had worked with a million people, but I was like, wow, you got to work with Bill Curtis. I loved him in American justice. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was probably like his swan song. <laughs> okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> I had to throw it out there. You know, it's just one of those random, yeah, just random. factoids that listeners love to know about you. Hey, it is what it is. <laughs> yep. But no, it's, it is important for cases like this to be continued to be continued to be pursued by people like yourself and like Sean. And obviously the family is always going to be committed to finding answers, but you know, you're dedicating an hour plus and um, um, many, many, many hours of research, I'm sure into this case. Definitely. Yeah. uh, Looking for an answer answer. And I just hope that, at the very least, we bring some information to the police and right. What, I I I kind of feel like they're on the verge. Like they just need that one person to come forward with that little bit of information that they need. Like the last piece of the puzzle. Like I would be surprised. I think, as you said earlier, they either have no idea who did it, which is one option, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a possibility. Or I feel probably what's more likely is they have a good suspicion of who they think did it, but just don't have quite enough to prove it yet is probably what I'm leaning towards more. Um, So I think they're just waiting, as you say, for like that one little thing that they need. Yeah. I've heard that. uh, I've heard that a number of times and I don't know if I can always. Hopefully it's true. I hope it's true, but it's one of those. I feel like if they knew who it was. Now I will say this. The interviews are kind of low, the the amount of them. So they must know something because 300 right. interviews is nothing. Unless she didn't have that big of a circle, right? Like, True. I'm not sure where she worked. Like, there's so little out there about the case, right? I don't know. Did she work? Did she just stay home? Did she, like, was there only family and close friends and people in the apartment to interview? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how, like, different people have different circles, like, all different social circles with different amounts of people, right? Like, I'm really busy with work and my true crime thing. Like, yeah, I was going to say, not you're... need to interview more than 300 people with me, and then they might cover everyone I've ever talked to. And like, I was going to say, right? bullshit, like, bullshit on that, because, like, they could be like, 
interviewing everybody. Oh, I guess. Read your right. web page. Okay. That's I mean, true. all of that. I mean, think about how many people you've, you know. Right. Had some ever. kind of contact. Exactly. With. Those are the things right. that make the numbers jump. And that's Yeah, why... but maybe she didn't have that type of life. Right? Like, it's hard to know. It's, it's I, unfortunate. I like your perspective that maybe that's why there's such a small amount of interviews. Maybe it's because they kind of might know something, but like there's a difference between knowing something and proving something. Oh, that's, I run into that more often than you would imagine. And I'm sure you do too. Because yep, but that, it's true though. It's a cliche, but it is true. And there, it's, we're one tip away. We're one step away. The public is key. This, that, and the other. And, but it's and that so- always pisses me off when it seems like they say that and then have stopped working on it. But that, that isn't what I think is the case here. Like, I feel like that is the case that they need more information, but I don't feel like they're just saying that, but not actively also looking for information. Yeah. Like- the case, right. Like it feels like it's still active to me. Like with the, big um like 10 year anniversary thing they did with the interviews and like the com and like the press conference and like yeah it definitely and like it's still on their website and they talk about it whenever I guess they get the chance I don't know I feel like and from just what Sean's told me it seems like he is not unhappy with the work the police have done or are doing Mm -hmm. right like it seems like he he feels from i don't want to speak for him but just from the few interactions i've had with him he seems like he still has a really good relationship with the police and i think he feels maybe that they're working together right so it feels to me like it's still definitely not as we were talking about a cold case by far it still feels like there's a chance yeah, yeah, I mean, even the case that I've that I've started with is thirty years old, and actually today that we're recording is the thirty year anniversary of when the body was discovered of Amy Mahalovic, and that's the case that started me in the whole podcast genre. But um, but I'll say this about the anniversaries and the release of inf- the trickle of information and stuff like that it's like they're trying to draw out somebody and right bring that person or somebody who knows that person out into the forefront and say hey by the way this guy <laughs> you know because a lot of times you get and i've run into this too and i'm sure you have again as well of cases where they release a suspect's picture or composite sketch and then all of a sudden ex-wives and ex-girlfriends or uh, people that have a you know something to a grudge against that person will (laughs) accuse that person of being the killer and i know that in the case that i covered in my first podcast that happened a number of times and that's just insane it's bonkers It's bonkers. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. So I hope that this will at least bring more attention to the case and will maybe drive some more publicity as far as what's been written about it. I know that you've been able to carry the torch for a long time, and it seems like between you and you and Sean. (laughs) Yeah, uh, between us. It's uh, pretty much 
a two person show. So I would say that, uh, you know, getting the information out there is, is key. And again, we are literally just across the lake. We're not that far away from each other. Right. Um, Let me just share a couple phone numbers in case one of your listeners happens to be the killer and wants to call. All right. All right. right. Now, see, you got to, now I got too solid again. I was setting you up again. <laughs> Sorry, I beat okay. you to it. So okay, so has, oh no, no, you oh, see, oh. me again. Oh no. All right. Okay. So, so you know, we've we've been talking about this case, and we're getting the information out there, and now we brought the case to the states. And what would somebody do if they had any information about this case? Okay, anyone with any information should contact London Police Service at 519-661-5670 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. So if anyone knows anything that could help, maybe if they're the murderer and want to clear their conscience, this is how they can do that, is by calling those numbers. And with Crime Stoppers, and I'm assuming with the police as well, you can remain anonymous. With the police, I'm not sure. With Crime Stoppers, you can. Okay. Is there an a reward being offered for any information? Not that I had ever seen. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I do hope that with this episode, we do bring some more attention and some tips to Crime Stoppers and to the London Police Service. And hopefully Lisa's family will be able to one day be able to close this chapter. We'll never be able to have closure because, again, in this business and in this industry you know there is no such thing as closure for somebody who loses a family member so uh all we can hope is for resolution and well I, thanks for letting me come on today bill and talk about my passion case i really appreciate the opportunity and the opportunity to share lisa's case and yeah hope to help in any other way that we can so uh, thanks so much for coming on i love having people from up north come on the show and Tell all your Canadian friends to come on my passion case because I've already talked to uh, Robin Warder and. Uh, oh, he's amazing! Just, I just yeah. listened to his recent podcast earlier today. I love his show. Yeah, we and were... Minds of Madness set in Toronto. I research and write for them for Tyler and Beck. Yeah, they're incredible too. So. Yeah, do give me all your pub, uh, you know, pluggables. Right. Okay. As my favorite podcaster, Robert Evans at the moment says. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, Well, you can check out my true crime site at the truecrimefiles.com. Scott Fuller, as I mentioned, has turned my articles into podcast episodes. They're available on any podcast platform. It's called the true crime files. Um, And you can listen to an episode on Lisa's case on there. Plus, we probably have about 15 other ones done already, 10 to 15. Um, What else? I research and write for The Minds of Madness. They're a fantastic podcast in Toronto, which is also in Southern Ontario. And my favorite, favorite city in in, in the up north. (laughs) Well, I think they're more like Scarborough, but people don't really know what that is, so... Yeah, I always. Yeah, I don't know what that is. So yeah, so we'll just say Toronto. Um, Tyler and Beck are amazing people, and their podcast is great. So you should definitely check that out. And And hopefully, they'll be on the show soon. Right. 
And let me think. Um, the True Crime Files has a Facebook page, and we're on Twitter, and we're very active on both of those. And what's your Twitter handle? Um, at the TC Files. I'm pretty sure I haven't looked at my Twitter handle <laughs> in a while. Like I'm on there all the time, but now say- I'm like on, yep. It's at the TC files. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I just go on it and share things and tweet. I don't stare at my Twitter handle. Well, no, it's, it, it's one thing I, I do like about Twitter is that it is fun to read an article that you want to share and be able to share it with the people that you are like somewhat in the business with and you know definitely and yeah i think twitter is where i find like a lot of the new podcasts i want to check out and like that's how we got hooked up yes so yeah it's a great world well i mean that might be an exaggeration it's an don't don't go too far (laughs) i went a bit too far there we're we're in the midst of coronavirus and uh some crazy orange guy running something that i don't want to call uh what he is so anyway uh yeah on that note um (laughs) that feels like a good way to end it (laughs) we live in a we live in a fabulous world and i do appreciate you coming on the show really i really do it's been wonderful to chat thank you so much to christine from the true crime files for joining me this week on who killed again i drop new episodes every friday and you can find those wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you want to donate to the show, you can do so via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. And again, if you want to support the show by leaving a review, that would help too. But uh, again, appreciate you guys tuning in. I wouldn't be here without you guys. And uh, we'll keep plugging away. And we got some new changes ahead, but... Uh, really good stuff and uh looking forward to it so thank you guys again so much for tuning in and as always until next time stay healthy and be safe Twenty-four hours ago i found out the person that i'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man that is my sister emma Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. 
I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.